So glad you could join us today. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC, and we're going to pick up our study of We Are the Church in the book of Ephesians. Uh, last week we looked at verses 3 through 14. This week we're going to start looking at verses 15 through 23, and we're going to see a really specific and powerful prayer. Um, in my household before bedtime, uh, there's often a battle between sisters about who's going to be the one that prays. Uh, so here, here's the context. Uh, it, we do some type of devotional as a family, three girls in one room. And when the devotional is completed, we'll, we'll typically ask, uh, who, who would like to pray? And occasionally, uh, one or sometimes more than one will raise their hand and, and, and exclaim they want to pray, right? Hence the battle. So when we get all that sorted out, the battle is done, and we've chosen who's going to pray. Uh, we then allow that child to pray while we listen. When they complete that prayer, I offer a couple words of encouragement, and then either I or Amy will complete our time together. That being said, I've really started to take a step back here recently and just pay attention to what my children are praying for. And, and I've noticed something uh, interesting. Uh, I've noticed that it's, it's a very rare occasion that my children don't pray and thank God for one another and for their brother Hudson and for my wife and for myself. In fact, it's such a rare occasion that they forget this, that when they do, you can be sure that one of their sisters will absolutely point it out. As I thought about this and then reflected during my study of Ephesians chapter 1, my mind immediately went to verses 15 and 16. And Paul continually here gives thanks and praise for the believers at Ephesus. And he does this because of the gospel that's taken root in their life, and then also the fruit that comes out of that. And, and Paul gives specific motivations and specific purposes behind his prayer that we'll walk through together today. But Paul prays for what is important to him continually. Just like my children incessantly and persistently pray for what's most important to them. Today's passage is going to be very instructive to us as the church. It's also going to be very encouraging, but I want to be really clear um, out of the gate. Paul wrote this uh, passage and in, in book to believers, to, to the believers specifically at the church of Ephesus, uh, and it does have implications uh, for the modern day church as well, but, but he wrote it to those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, having said this, um, I, I realize that there may be some in our midst uh, listening out there that, that do not fall into that category, and, and that's okay. Because to you, I say, stick with me. Listen intently this morning and know that the invitation for you to know and to trust in salvation is open today. And so I challenge you to pay attention. And my prayer for you is that the Lord would open your eyes and do a work in your life so that you may respond in faith. And then for the believers listening, my prayer is very specific for you as well, that your knowledge and your love for Jesus would grow to an even deeper level and that you would leave our time together seeing more clearly the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards you. Let's pray and then we're going to read together uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Gracious God, I, I come to you this morning asking and requesting that you give us focus and that you would remove distractions, that you would help our minds and our hearts uh, to, to pay close attention to the words that you have for us today. Lord, help us to, to know you more from our study today and to love you more so that this births into fruit. And Lord, I ask you, as the one now teaching, 
to do a work in me, knowing that teaching God's word in the manner in which you see fit and want me to is impossible without your work through me. So Lord, help me to do this today. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read chapter one, verses 15 through 23. Here's what it says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here uh, in verse 15, we see a shift, right? Paul shifts into a prayer for those whom he calls saints, those whom have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Another way to say this is that the believers that have trusted uh, in Jesus Christ personally and know him personally. And so Paul has, has just completed a magnificent doxology, and he works through a lot of things. And, and, and this doxology includes uh, the praise for the believer's reception of spiritual blessings and this applied yet undeserved holiness and God's chosen adoption and our redemption through Jesus' death, forgiveness of sins according to God's grace, and this new reunion with Christ himself and this inheritance that's promised to us. And honestly, we could continue on and on and on. And even after Pastor Michael's incredible laying, laying out of that, that passage last week, we could spend three or four more weeks just teasing out what Paul is talking about. But then we get to verse 15, and Paul shifts his focus. He shifts his focus from a praise to God of what he's done and is doing and redirects his focus to those whom he has addressed the entire book. And this is very instruction, instructive for us. Look at verse 15, and you're going to see in verses 15 and 16 Paul's motivation for his prayer. Look at the first three words. For this reason. If you're studying your Bible, this should spark something in your mind. You should ask, well, what reason, Paul? What, what, what are you asking me to look at? Look back at verses 13 and 14. It, it's, it's very clear. His reasoning for praying is the gospel that's taken root in their life and the fruit that comes out of that. Paul walks them through. They heard the gospel. Someone spoke the gospel to them, and then God began to do work, and then they believed, and then they were sealed, and then they were guaranteed a promise of an inheritance. And then you get into verse 15 and 16, and Paul says, for this reason, for your faith and your love for the saints, the result of Paul hearing of their faith and their fruit is an unceasing thanksgiving and prayer. Now, I want to camp here just for a minute because I think this is really instructive for us as a church when we think about our prayer life. Uh, so the first thing I want you to see is that there is a very clear and present prayer life in Paul's life. Now, this may echo of our study in the book of Daniel, but you know, suffice to say, we talked a lot about how a real dependent life on the Lord must start with a consistent prayer life to the Lord. How is your prayer life today? Do you have a vibrant prayer life? 
Secondly, I want you to see the order of his prayer. I think this is instructive to us. He starts with thanksgiving and then petition. He thanks God first and foremost for these things because he recognizes that God is the source of their faith. It's something that God has done and is doing. And then he moves from what God has done into asking God for something. Here at TCC, we often use what's called the ACTS uh, methodology of prayer. It's just a simple acronym, ACTS, Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's not the only way to structure your prayer, but it's a healthy one. It finds its root in scriptures. And the first thing that we would encourage you to do is to praise God, to adore him. And that's, that's what Paul does. And so the order here is important. Recognizing what God has done is incredibly important. May we not be those that only ask and not think. Thirdly, I want you to see that Paul has an unbegrudging joy. This is really interesting to me. Paul's joy, we see results in his thanksgiving, but his joy comes from the continual progress, the continual maturity that he sees in the, in the believers at Ephesus. By the way, he's in prison at this point. So, so he, sees, he takes joy even while in such a hard time. But let me ask a, a rhetorical or maybe even a, a digging question. How often are we tempted to be jealous and begrudge other Christians when we see them grow, or maybe when we see them have great strength. And, and furthermore, especially when we ourselves are undergoing trial. Next, I want you to see that there's an implied assumption that the saints should love one another. Right? So Paul is rejoicing in, and there is an assumption that the saints would love one another in, in unity. And remember, Paul is praying for an already healthy church. He's not just thanking God and praying for these things in a church that's sick, although it's important to do those things. But he's praying for a, for a church that is healthy, and he's thanking God for these things in a church that are healthy. This, this hits home for me and my family particularly. Many of you know Amy has recovered over a, a five or six weeks ago from COVID-19. It was a hard time for us, right? We have numerous kids. She was extremely sick. And the way that the saints loved me, and not just the universal church, because they absolutely did, but I was reflecting even this weekend of how our little church at this point, we're a church plant, we're growing, but, but our church loved us, my family, so well that I praise God for that. There's an assumption that that love should be there amongst saints. And then lastly, I want you to see that his prayer is very, very specific. In just a minute, we'll walk through the purpose of Paul's prayer. But for now, I want you to see two things in the specificity of his prayer. I want you to notice that he actually prays for the faith of the church, and he prays for other churches. Are we in the habit of praying for one another's faith? Do I pray that the Lord would grant you a deeper faith? And do I pray that the Lord would bolster your faith? And do you pray that for me? And further, do we pray for other churches? We're in this together, right? So from first glance, right out of the gate, Paul's prayer is extremely instructive to us. His motivation for prayer is the gospel and its fruit, and it is very instructive. Look at verses 17 through 19, and, and let's just stop at the beginning of verse 17. It says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. I want you to see here at the beginning of chapter, verse 17, the purpose of Paul's prayer. But before we get to the purpose, I want you to see who he addresses. And this is really important. He addresses 
the God of all glory. The one to whom all glory belongs. This God is all-powerful. We'll speak more later together about his power, but it's very important who and how he speaks to the Lord. But then let's skip ahead to verse 18, and I want you to see something. Don't worry, I'll come back to the rest of 17. But, but look at verse 18. This is the real crux of, of Paul's purpose, and it, and it starts with that you may know. That you may know. Here's, here's the takeaway for us. Knowledge is intricately connected to our growth in holiness. Now let me be clear. I'm not talking about having knowledge just to be knowledgeable. I'm not talking about seeking knowledge on our own strength under any circumstances. For both of those examples, we would most assuredly find ourselves in a place of boasting, and you'll see next week in chapter 2, verse 9, that we are that no man should boast, right? So, so that you may know, what kind of knowledge is this? The knowledge that Paul is referencing is found in verse 17. It's the knowledge of him, of Jesus. It's to know God personally and to be known by him. It's unique knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. Sidebar plug here. I'm going to give you a quote from a well-known classic author by the name of J.I. Packer. He wrote the book Knowing God, and we're going to start in two weeks from now a study with men. It's 6.30 in the morning on Fridays. Yes, I know it's early, but it'll be good for you. So everybody go sign up, but wait till the sermon's over. But, but he writes a book called Knowing God, and here's what he says. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of the child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom calls him Father. If you allow me to, and most that know me well know I do this often, but if you allow me to stretch the English dictionary, we as believers are called to be knowers of God. Those that continually pursue a deeper knowledge of God so that we continue to grow in our holiness. Now let's circle back to verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of, re- and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is not merely a a sophisticated intellect or or some type of deeper study, although that can be a part of it. As we've already seen, this is a personal knowledge of God himself and of being known by him. And so here we see Paul asking for a gift of wisdom, for God to grant wisdom before he even gets to the core of the prayer. Don't miss this. It's as if Paul is saying... Apart from this gift of wisdom, asking for these things or seeking these things is a hopeless endeavor. I really like how Francis Folks puts it in his commentary on Ephesians. He says that Paul places his request here for wisdom because to him, the gospel was so wonderful that it is impossible for people to see its glory unless they are taught by God. Church, are we in the habit of asking God to give us this wisdom in full recognition without it? It's impossible for us to know him the way Paul was seeking here. 
without the work of the Spirit granting us this wisdom, it's impossible for us to know Him. Further, do we apply this to all of life? I want to give you a statement, and a number of commentators have said it in a number of different ways. But, but knowing God always implies the union of the everyday with a deeper communion with God. The everyday and communion with God come together. Knowing God is always that. Look at the second part of verse 17 may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is asking for the spirit to do work. He's he's asking the spirit to act on behalf of those that know and love him. John Stott, uh, Michael's mentioned him a number of times as a well-known commentator as well, and he comments that we see in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth, the agent of revelation, and the teacher of the people of God. That's not exhaustive by any means. But here's what I want you to see. Paul recognizes that this wisdom is a gift of the Spirit. And there is great confidence by Paul in the ministry of the Spirit. And this is evidenced by his continuance in the prayer. It's as if he's he's asking the Spirit for this, and he doesn't even skip a beat because he believes that if we seek this out from the Spirit for the glory of God and for the good of the church, that he'll grant it. Because the Spirit desires for us to know God more. So what are the details of Paul's prayer? We're going we're to get into this together in verse 18, but let's, let's stop at the beginning of it. I want to I pause us for a minute. It says, uh, firstly, right, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. In, in this context, it's best to understand this, this idea of hearts being enlightened as, as meaning the entire innermost self. It's, it's all of us. It includes the mind and the emotion and the soul. It's, it's more than just a mental ascent. It, even the demons know who God is. We see that evidenced in the Gospels. What, what Paul is talking about here is a, is a conscious experience. It's a taste in a sea that the Lord is good. I like how Piper renders this when he's, he likens it to a jar of honey. He says, you don't simply know that it is honey because of the label. You know that it's honey because you've tasted it, right? You've experienced it. This is what Paul's talking about, to know God more in a practical and a perceived way on a daily basis. Paul then moves on to offer three great tr- truths that he wants us to know. So, so what's the first of these? The first thing he asks for is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, from first glance, he's not praying that the Spirit would give them these things. They already have them, by the way. We already have these things in Christ from the moment of salvation. We've been called to something. We have this hope that we're called to. We have the hope, we have the inheritance, and we have the power has called us to something and for something. God's calling of us is not haphazard. It's not pointless. You even see in Romans, and Paul uses an illustration to show us this, but at the end of the day, his point is God paid for us with a price, and he wants to use us for a purpose. And we ultimately know, as the New Testament carries on, this thought that you being used by God for the purpose that he's created us is for our good and really for our joy in Christ. 
So he's called us to enforce something. It's not haphazard and pointless. But, but then let's move down the verse a little bit. What is the hope that he has called us to? What, what does that hope look like? And we could search all over the Scriptures, but I think more appropriately for our study today, because it's all over the, the Bible, we can look in Ephesians and in a number of places in the New Testament. Number one, he's called us to be saints. Verse one, we saw that two weeks ago. He's called us to be holy. Verse four, we saw that last week. He's called us to be free from sin. Galatians 1, 5, verses 1 and verse 13. He's called us to unity and peace with one another. You see this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, and then you can move to Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. By the way, this fellowship, this unity and peace, this fellowship, it stretches across the boundaries of race and class. He calls us to suffering just as Christ suffered, 1 Peter 2, 21. And he calls us to glory. One day we will be reunited in glory in the eternal heaven. John Stock continues and he says, All of this was in God's mind when he called us. He called us to Christ and holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory, an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey and serve Christ, enjoy fellowship with him and with each other. This is the hope that Paul is asking the Spirit of God to help us know God more so that we can see this in a way that applies to our practical everyday life. Secondly, the Scriptures say that he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, a number of writers uh, would say this in, in, in a variety of ways, but, but I think it's an important uh, point. The calling mentioned above, the, the calling that we just talked about, it, it references kind of like our, our beginning of life in Christ, the, the beginning of our salvation. Now we're looking at the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and this seems to point us to, to the end, when, when Christ gives us our inheritance. And so it's this idea of a final inheritance. It's the same inheritance that the Holy Spirit guaranteed us in verse 14, by the way, that we've already looked at. And it's also the same inheritance that's, that's found in one of my favorite books in all the scriptures, Peter. First Peter chapter 1, he says it's this, in, 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 this inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so we as Christians, every day, on, on some basis, in the day-to-day, -day, in the normal life of the mundane, we should anticipate with delight and gratitude the inheritance that is ours in Christ. And Paul here prays that the Spirit would help us know the riches of this inheritance. Now this has great implications for the everyday, and it should be something that we should consider, maybe even often, and we'll comment more later on, on the practical application because I want to get really real uh, for us on a, on a, on a low level. But, but what happens this side of heaven is not the final word. There's more to come. All things will be made new and we will be reunited with Christ in eternity forever. Thirdly, I want you to see there in verse 18, excuse me, 19, that he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Given that Paul's last two points kind of cover the beginning of the life in Christ and then the end, this one seems to really cover the in-between 
Many would actually say this could perhaps be the most important thing that he prays for, for our life now, right? Because it, it speaks very specifically to our life as we know it today. And, and honestly, the language here that's used in the passage is, is some of the strongest language of all three requests. And he uses words like immeasurable greatness and power and the work of Christ. And so immeasurable carries this meaning of infinite and vast and unsearchable and endless. And, and then you've got this idea of the power that is working towards us by his great might. It's God's might that's doing it. And something is operationally happening. This power is working. It's active on our behalf. This, 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 this power is, is able to be perceived and actually realized in our life. It's not just simply an abstract concept. A good exercise for us as believers is, is to reflect on how the Lord has grown you in specific areas of our life. Amy and I do this probably not nearly as often as we should, but we go through seasons of our life and practice where we will write down a specific request, oftentimes one that's more pressing, and we'll refer back to it at a later time to see how the Lord has answered that. That's an important exercise. Francis Folks comments further that the burden of Paul's prayer, in fact, is that the mighty power of God may be known and experienced by its operation in us who believe. And the apostle is confident that it belongs to the men and women on this simple condition of faith in Jesus. Now, I addressed two groups earlier, those of us that know Christ and have a relationship with him and those that do not, right? So to the unbeliever, I want to draw your attention. And again, I hope you're, you're, you're accepting my challenge and you're listening intently to what Paul has to say to us. But, but I'll, I'll say this, you as an unbeliever, you can't know the immeasurable greatness of his power apart from faith in Jesus. But as I said earlier, I pray that the Lord would reveal himself to you and you would respond in faith so that you can know these things because the invitation is open. And then for believers, I pray that this power that Paul is speaking of will become so evident in your life for the glory of the Lord and the good of those that love him. Let's move on to verse 20. And we're going to see here the basis of Paul's prayer. There's a, another little shift here. And so he goes on to that, that he worked. That refers back to everything he's just said. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him fills all in all. Now we said a lot there, and we're going we're to traverse this together. But I want to give you an overarching statement here that I think might be helpful. God's power is exemplified for us most clearly in the work done in and after the resurrection. In verse 20 through 23, Paul gives us this incredible picture and demonstration showing the greatness of God's power to us. So, so here's the deal. What is the basis of Paul's prayer? What, what gives Paul's prayer confidence? What gives it credibility? Well, let's answer that. We'll break it into four sections. Number one, the power working toward us now is the same power 
that he worked in Christ through the resurrection. Let that, let that sink in for a minute. This power is power over death. It, it, it's a power that defeated death. That brings our minds to 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that rose us spiritually from the dead. And this is the power that is at work in us now, today, that we possess. And Paul is praying that the Spirit of God would help us know God more so that we would see this power. Secondly, this power working toward us now is the same power that accomplished the ascension. It says, seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This, this indicates that Christ's work on earth is done, providing us as humans that love Christ access to this power. And in Ephesians 2.6, in fact, you'll see next week, it says that God raised us up with himself and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So, so here's the deal. The same power that completed the ascension has also placed us in God's presence as well. And it is working in us now, in the day-to-day. Thirdly, the power working toward us now is the same power that exalted Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named in this age and the age to come. This should bring our minds to Ephesians 6, I think. Verse 12, actually. There's a phrase mentioned here, and in, in, in it's rulers and authorities. And, and in chapter 6, verse 12, this encompasses this idea of spiritual warfare against the devil and demons. So the power that Paul is referring to gives Jesus his triumph and shows him as the true victor over spiritual warfare. Jesus is exalted over all rulers on this earth and of hell. And the power, this power, his power, is working on our behalf in the spiritual realms in ways we can't even see. I believe with all my heart the Lord doesn't allow us to see this because in our human and, infinite and finite mind we wouldn't be able to handle it. Paul wants and prays that we will know the Lord more deeply so that we know this power more in-depthly. Lastly, the power working toward us now is the same power that puts all things under his feet and grants headship to Jesus over all the church. So number one, he is head and has authority and rule over all things. Nothing is out of his purview. And we as believers can always take rest in what the Old Testament writer calls the cleft of the rock. For he is a good, good ruler over all things. He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And then he's more specifically the head of the church. The church is his body, and he loves the church. And the church and its leaders are under the head of Jesus himself. And so the implications for the church here are vast, and we'll work through this, a lot of this, through the book of, of Ephesians, through our study of We Are the Church here in the book of Ephesians. But suffice to, to say, we must look at the Word of God, the, the Scriptures, intently to best understand how the church should operate. But, but, but here's the deal. The same power that put Jesus over all things is the same power that is working 
in the day-to-day, in the life of the believer. To summarize these last three verses, because the Lord's power is so evident in the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation, and the granting of headship of Christ, we can have confidence that knowing God more, knowing this God that Paul speaks of, asking the Spirit to give us wisdom to know this God more, that all of it is trustworthy. So here we see the basis of Paul's claims coupled with the practical application of his claims. And so Paul prays that we would be consciously and experientially aware and know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward those who believe. Not abstract, but consciously. So I said earlier that I was going to get a little bit down in the nitty-gritty a bit. And, and, and I want to do that. Because the question I always ask when, when we think about such lofty claims as these, I always ask, what does this mean for us practically? And, and maybe you're sitting out there. I, I can see your heads moving now. Um, you nod your head, and, and maybe you agree with these things that I'm saying. You, you, you agree, Chris, God is all-powerful, and His power is at work, and yes, amen, and, and, and maybe you're, you're pumping your fist like, like, like Arsenio. I'm, I'm throwing my age here a little bit. But, but in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, I, I just don't see it in my life. Chris, I don't, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but I just, I just don't see it. I don't, I don't experience it. I, I don't, I, it's too abstract for me. Maybe it's the progress you're not seeing with your kids. Maybe it's the anxiety and the fear that continually overtake you. Maybe it's that sin or sin pattern that just never seems to go away. Maybe it's marital challenges that, that are probably often brought on by, by our own sinfulness. All of these things and more you so desperately want to change and you hate and you want to grow in maturity with, but you just don't see it. Well, let me take a second today to encourage you. God's power is working. It's working in your life as a believer and on your behalf. Now, that's a bold statement to claim, but I believe it with all my heart. But let me give you some practical examples. I believe that some of the biggest obstacles for us to see God's power in the day-to-day revolves around a couple things. And, and I would kind of title them this, but you can you know, change the titles if, if you're a little more creative than I am. The first would be focus, and the second would be giving credit where credit is due. First, Focus. Let's think about this. Oftentimes, I think we as people, as a culture, are so distracted by everything around us that we often don't stop long enough to focus on what the Lord has and is doing. So we end up merely and easily seeing the things he hasn't done, because that's easier, right? It's always easier to see the things that he hasn't done. It's human nature to find the negative. The second thing, credit where credit is due. You, you can tack this up to pride and, and probably carve it out in a number of, number of ways because pride is definitely embedded here. But I believe that many times the Lord shows up, especially in the mundane, and we fail to see that it was him that did the work. Maybe we tack it up to our own strength or something else, but nonetheless, we simply miss the act coming from him. 
So what I want to do is I just want to, I, I want to walk through a couple of practical examples. I challenged myself to do this as I worked through this study because I pray that it affects my life just as much as it does yours. But I challenged myself to just stop for a minute and focus and get out of my own way for a minute and think about and write out things that the Lord does that I and maybe some of you will resonate with or are tempted to miss. Here's a couple of them. What about that small reminder of hope that may come in the form of a text or a song or an email or just a, a call from a friend uh, or even through the scriptures on a really hard day? Do you see God's work and power in that? What about, what about that loving spouse that although is not perfect, loves Jesus? Do, do you recognize that God gave you that, that that's God's power, and, and God's power is also working in, in, in your spouse's life as well? What about your church? Right? We've talked about the unity of the body, and, and we've talked about how, how Christ loves his church. And, and so what about the, the church that you have that seeks to teach the Bible faithfully and seek to be missional? Do, do you see that that's God's power? It's his work, his operational activity to grant you that? and to help the leaders and the other members in that church to make up that body of believers? What about that sin struggle that was so evident in your life five years ago, but now you don't even think about because it's just a distant memory? Or how about the job you now have when 12 months ago you had no idea where your provision was coming from? Remember, he gives you the intellect and the ability and the opportunity, and now you have a job. Whether you like it or not, you are able to provide do you see God's hand in that, in his power? What about the extra space for prayer and maybe devotional life that you've been praying for fervently? And even though he may accomplish that through a stay-at-home quarantine because of a pandemic, there's your space. Do you see God's hand working there? What about that friend or group of friends that you so desperately begged him for for so long? Yet now they are such an intricate part of your life that you hardly notice. Or maybe it's the, the deeper illumination of your understanding of the Lord of, of, or your sin or of the scriptures or, or, or of the church and your love for the church. Do you see God's power in the mundane? I, I could go on and on and on, but oh Lord, forgive us for not seeing how you are already demonstrating your power in our life. I hope, I hope that we have demonstrated this morning that the Lord's power is at work and it is evident and it can be seen and it can be perceived and it's not always miraculous acts of spreading the sea or raising a dead man from the grave, but it's in the day-to-day. -day. I pray that your life would grow today from our study and your knowledge of God would grow and your recognition of God's power would grow from the mere glimmer that maybe it is right now to an incredibly clear flame that pervades all of your life for the glory of God and for the good of those who love Him. And may we confess and repent to God when we don't. This is Paul's prayer. It's certainly my prayer, and I've been challenged to do that this morning. But I also believe it should be your prayer.
So to the unbeliever, you're welcome into the family. Come, trust Jesus, and begin your journey to know this power. And for the believer, I challenge you to begin seeking the Lord for wisdom and for deeper knowledge in him so that you would see the immeasurable greatness of his power in your life. May God's word today push us more deeply into a knowledge of him that it has lasting effects on our life. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for how it speaks to our hearts directly, how it cuts deep, Lord, but yet it also gives us hope. Lord, thank you for servants like the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we don't hold him up because he's any better than the next guy. Lord, he is a great example for us to seek, but we don't seek him because of who Paul is. We seek him for who Paul seek, because of who Paul seeks. And Lord, I pray specifically today for all of us that, Lord, we would see more clearly the power of God in our life. And for those that don't know you, Jesus, please, I beg of you, reveal yourself to them and may they respond in faith. Lord, I, I, I pray that we're more changed into the image of you and that this teaching would not be merely passive. But Lord, we know that's only the work your spirit can do. So do that in our lives. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.